The reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, starting to read at verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then? Shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
thank you, Heavenly Father, that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you would speak to each one of us now by the power of your Spirit as we look at your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's very good indeed to see each one of you uh, here uh, today. Thank you so much for being here in the middle of the busyness of life and the busyness of today. Uh, I know some of you have been here over the past couple of weeks uh, and some of you, uh, maybe you haven't, but as Claire said, I've been going through a three-week um, a series on what motivated William Wilberforce, what motivated him. Uh, in the first week, we thought about the transformation of the individual, and we thought about um, Wilberforce actually coming to faith in his 20s, uh, and actually how he described it as the great change, the great change in his life, as he came to what he referred to as a real faith in Jesus, as he received Jesus Christ as Lord, and the difference that internally that made to the, everything else in his life. And then last week we thought, uh, not so much about the transformation of the individual, but the transformation of the world. And how Wilberforce very much saw himself, not just as a representative of his his constituency, but a representative of the Lord Jesus. And what it meant for him, uh, for his whole life, to be about transforming and having an influence in this world, supremely as we know about in terms of the abolition of the slave trade, but what that meant in terms of having a transformative influence for Jesus in the world. And today, we are thinking about, uh, as the title you'll see there, the transformation of the present uh, and the future. And before we get to Wilberforce, I'd love just to, to, if you would, to just look at the paragraph uh, starting at verse 28 again. Um, Before we actually think about Wilberforce, let's just look at this paragraph a little bit. Verse um, 28 uh, says this. Paul's writing, he's writing to the Romans, and he says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And what I'd love us to see this lunchtime is the chain that Paul describes there. You'll see those different verbs. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, and God glorified us. It's like a sort of guaranteed chain of events, like a sort of a set of dominoes, one domino knocking over the next one. And and in terms of sort of when they happen, God foreknew, God predestined, both those happened, if you like, before time. Then God called, God justified. Both of those happened for each person at the moment that we start out the Christian life when we receive Jesus as Lord. And then God glorified us. That's Paul describing where Christians will be and what we will be like in the eternal future. And so you might be wondering, as you look at those, why does that last one, when Paul says uh, glorified, end of verse 30, why does he put it in the past tense when it's actually still in the future? I mean, all the other ones, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, uh, they've all happened already if we are Christians, but not glorified. That's still in the future. And the answer is that Paul puts it in being glorified, he puts it in the past tense, not because it's already happened, nor because it is happening right now, but because despite us being glorified, still happening in the future from now, it is absolutely certain to happen. It's as good as done because it is God who is making it happen. We will be glorious. Those who are in Christ, in the future, after death, will be free from sin, free from suffering, will have resurrection bodies, totally glorious. 
Now, when you investigate William Wilberforce, one of the most striking things that you discover about him is that a huge amount of what motivated him and why he had the focus he did in life, it comes from him having an eternal perspective. I mean, if you take Wilberforce, in, in Romans 8 terminology, in those, those five different verbs that I've just talked about, if we were sort of to draw a timeline from this wall to this wall, uh, for Wilberforce, in his belief was that he, uh, God foreknew him and God predestined him right over at this wall at the beginning of time. Uh, then he was born, we'll do his life represented by this book, we've got the timeline going all the way across there, okay? He was born at this end of the book in 1759. And then uh, Wilberforce's belief was God called him as he was growing up and through his 20s as he heard the gospel and then God justified him sort of about here um, in his early 20s as he put his faith in Jesus. If you were here for the first week, as he went on holiday with Isaac Milner, travelled around Europe looking at the New Testament together, God justified him as he put his faith in Jesus. And then, as the timeline goes on, Wilberforce would have believed that he was glorified when he died. He was glorified when he died, and he continues to be glorified into eternity, all the way over to that wall and beyond. Now, if we, and Wilberforce, if we can be totally confident of glory for all eternity after we die, the end of our life, at the end of this book here, all the way through there, if we can be confident of that, and we can be totally confident of that because it depends on Jesus, not on us. The question is, what should we be focusing primarily on now? So often what happens is we get so wrapped in, up in what happens in this little bit of the timeline, our life, that we forget about all the rest of the timeline. All that's going on all the way there into eternity. We forget that life after death even exists. And you know, what Wilberforce was so good at was he looked up from the pleasures and the pains of this life. He looked up from all the decisions and the difficulties of his struggles in life and in Parliament. And he went so often in his mind's eye all the way forwards to an eternity in glory, face to face with Jesus. That's where it's all heading to. That was his belief, the eternal future. It was such a key motivation for Wilberforce. And he looked to live his life in the light of that eternal future. I wonder if you've ever heard people say, you know, so-and-so, they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly use. So heavenly-minded, sort of head in the clouds about the future, that they're of no earthly use. Wilberforce proves that view totally wrong. I used to think it, but it is absolutely complete, utter rubbish. Because if you or I, if we have a hope of glory from this point onwards in the timeline all the way into the future, if we have that hope of glory, it doesn't make us less useful in this life. It actually makes us far more useful in the present. And here's why. Because if we are confident that in the future, God will give us glory, if we're confident that all the way there, God is going to give us glory, then in the present, in this life, we will be more ready to give God glory. If we know God is going to give us all the glory forevermore, then right now, we are more ready to give God glory now. And that is what we see so clearly in the life of William Wilberforce. Perhaps we see it most clearly in his amazing humility towards the end of his life. Just imagine it, all that he'd achieved. He could have been glorying in all he'd been able to accomplish, but that was so far from his mind. 
two weeks before his death, referring to the famous par uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, Wilberforce said this, he said, I have nothing whatsoever to urge but the poor publican's plea, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew that it was solely because of God's mercy through Jesus that he could have a certain hope of eternal glory, not because of anything he'd achieved. Uh, over the years, as he was working for the abolition of the slave trade, many people attacked Wilberforce in all sorts of ways. Lord Nelson referred to the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. Uh, James Boswell, the famous biographer of Dr. Johnson, wrote this delightful poem about Wilberforce. Uh, let me read you the poem. He wrote as follows. Go, Wilberforce, with narrow skull. Go home and preach away at Hull. No longer in the Senate cackle, in strains that suit the tabernacle. I hate your little whittling sneer, your pert and self-sufficient leer. Mischief to trade sits on your lip. Insects will gnaw the noblest ship. Go, Wilberforce, be gone for shame. Thou dwarf with big, resounding neck. Not terribly pleasant, is it? You know, attacking his Christian belief, his intellect, his attitude, his integrity, his strategy, and the fact that Wilberforce was very small. Attacking all of that. And yet, while what Wilberforce did suffer in his health, partly due to all these attacks, he was able to stay humble, to keep going, to keep persevering, because he knew future glory awaited him. So it didn't matter if he didn't receive any glory in the here and now, in the present. And that is so similar to Paul in Romans 8. Just look at the top of the page, verse 18. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Present sufferings now, but there will be a future glory. So that's the first thing I'd love us to hold on to about Wilberforce. Wilberforce teaches you and I to have humility now in the present because of the glory in the future have humility now because there will be glory in the future. Second thing Wilberforce teaches us is to have purpose now in the present because of judgment in the future. So when you will read Wilberforce's journals, a key uh, feature of them is his belief in future judgment as, an, as a sort of the entryway to future glory. It's worth recognising there are, there are two judgments in scripture. There's judgment according to the gospel that people will be judged according to whether they believe the gospel, they put their trust in Jesus. But there's also judgment according to all of life. So yes, if, if, if you or I, if we believe in Jesus, we are saved, we have eternal life. But there's still, the Bible says, an assessment of our lives. So a little later in Romans, Romans 14 verse 12, Paul says, So then we will all have to give an account of ourselves to God. Or the writer to Hebrews says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Christians will give an account to God of our lives. Now there's no fear for the Christian. We can approach Judgment Day with calm. Those last verses of Romans 8, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor depth, Anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We can be assured of that. But we are still accountable. It's right that our lives will be brought under God's gaze and the way we have lived for Jesus will be revealed. And that was such a driver for William Wilberforce. Last uh, week, if you were here, I finished with, I think, my favourite quote of William Wilberforce of all. And, and he said this. He said, I resolve 
to endeavour henceforth to live more for the glory of God and the good of my fellow creatures. And purposely last week, I only told you that one. But that was actually only half the sentence of what he said. That first half, he said, I live for the glory of God and the good of my fellow people. But then he continues. He says, I resolve to endeavour henceforth to live more for the glory of God, the good of my fellow creatures, to live more by rule, as in the presence of him, by whom I shall finally be judged. In the presence of him, by whom I shall finally be judged. What motivated Wilberforce? Why did he want to live for the glory of God and the good of others? Because he knew one day he would stand before his judge to give an account of his life. And so for each one of us, it is a reminder to us It's a reminder as a Christian, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Jesus didn't die for us so that we could have a ticket to heaven and not be concerned about how we can make a difference for him in the here and now. And that gives us a purpose. Each one of us, we have a responsibility to use all that we've been given by God and to use the position that we've been placed in, and some here in very influential positions, to use that position for the glory of God and the good of others. And of course, that certainly includes social transformation, but also evangelism, telling people about Jesus. For Wilberforce, Wilberforce, the man who was at the forefront of the campaign for the abolition of the slave trade, he was also at the forefront of setting up organisations like the Bible Society and the Church Mission Society. He once said this, and I quote him, he said, remember that the salvation of one soul is of more worth than the mere temporal happiness of thousands or even millions. And then finally, just in the last minute or so, Wilberforce teaches us not just to have humility in the present because of glory in the future, not just to have purpose in the present because of judgment in the future, but he also teaches us to have joy in the present because of God's presence with us in the present. Just listen again to his motivations for living for the glory of God and the good of others. He said to live more by rule as in the presence of him by whom I shall finally be judged. Wilberforce knew as he went about his life in the present that God was present with him right now in the present by his spirit. In um, 1791, Wilberforce was uh, 32. The campaign for the abolition of the slave trade was, was just in its first few years. And John Wesley, John Wesley, in one of the last acts of John Wesley's life, John Wesley wrote to William Wilberforce. And he said this. He said, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, Who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of doing good. And John Wesley there was quoting verse 31 in our passage. Romans 8, verse 31. And the truth is that despite plenty of opposition, Wilberforce had such joy as he went through life. You just read his journals. You read about how there was a joyous conversation always going on in his household, often very chaotically. You just read how he interacted with his children in such a way that was just so different to sort of parenting at that time. He was so full of joy. 
And that joy came because he knew that God was with him and God was for him in the present. As the end of his life, the last uh, years of his life, he lost all his money. Um, he was very uh, ill. He had to wear sort of back, uh, a, 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 a brace around his back because of his curvature, his spine. He pretty much lost his eyesight. And yet you read his journals and again and again, Romans 8.28 is a verse he keeps repeating. He's full of joy. And he says, all things shall work for the good of those who love him. And so as I wrap up, for each one of us today, what a difference it can make if we, if we can be men and women like Wilberforce, who are marked by humility, who are marked by purpose, and who are marked by joy. How will that happen? Well, it can only happen when our motivation is the same as Wilberforce's. That you and I, we live each day now in the present. We live each day in the presence of him, Jesus, by whom we shall finally one day be judged. Shall we pray? Father, we praise you that in all things you work for the good of those who love you. And we pray for each one of us that you would help us have that eternal perspective. That you would help us lift our eyes from all the things of this life and look to eternity and then live in light of it. And we thank you for Wilberforce's example. Not a perfect man, but an amazing example to us. And we pray that you would help each one of us to be people that are marked by humility and purpose and joy. Help us to live even today in your presence. In your presence. You with us by your spirit. And in your presence knowing that one day